the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome to a Christmas Bisberg special sponsored by Geneva College. This will be a behind-the-scenes look at Christmas. I'm your host, Mike Howard, and it is my extreme thrill to have on the line with me to have this discussion over the next couple of days at this time slot, Professor Jonathan Watt. He's Professor of Biblical Studies and Linguistics at Geneva College and still does some teaching at the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary and has returned a little while back from yet another trip to Israel and Egypt. But I'm going to let him talk about all this stuff tonight on this very special Bisberg. Professor Jonathan Watt, welcome. Good to talk to you again. Uh, Thank you, Mike. Glad to be with you. Well, you and I go way, way back on an old show where we used to talk some biblical things. And I remember back then I would ask you a question and I would be quiet and I'd just let you talk. And so we're probably going to do a lot of that tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That sounds good to me, too. Well, it's good to be with you. Um, I know you do a lot of of trips. You're involved with a lot of things linguistic. When we talked about this idea, uh, I thought, boy, this will be fun because we can talk culture, we can talk geography, we can talk history, linguistics, and of course, theology. We'll do hopefully all of those things on this uh, special two-part Bisberg to air uh, over two nights and for a couple more nights after that. But I want to let people know this recording and the second part will also be at podcast pittsburgh.com so if you miss it or you want to let friends know about it we'll have it located there podcast pittsburgh.com and if you accidentally type pittsburghpodcast.com it's okay we got them both so we're thrilled to be here professor jonathan watt christmas it's a big thing for christians it's a big thing for people that aren't christians let's kind of maybe just lay out a little intro there to to the importance of this season around the world Mm-hmm. Well, of course, uh, the basic four stories of Jesus we have in the Bible uh, all give us some information about his origins, uh, but two of them in particular are giving us a lot of detail about what we call the infancy narratives, and that's the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And though you can sew together some parts from the other Gospels, those two uh, go into quite a bit of depth in their opening chapters, uh, both giving us some background information in terms of the, uh, I'll say, genealogies of Jesus, because mm-hmm. there's many ways to trace that over many generations. Um, Matthew giving us a particular linkage to Jesus, uh, if you will, royal rights as the, not not just any, but the descendant of David with a right to be on the throne of David as God made a promise to David that he'd have a perpetual heir on the throne, and Jesus fills that blank, uh, given that uh, the, the, the old kings of Israel and the Judean kingdom who were descended from David, uh, eventually that, that line got wrapped up in the 6th century violently. Jesus is the one who fulfills it. 
Um, Luke giving us some other information, uh, complimentary, uh, talking, for example, about uh, even more of the people who are around uh, either at or in the months following the birth of Jesus, and both of them working together to give us a, a rounded picture of his family situation, the unique circumstances, of course, of the virgin birth, which makes Jesus uh, such a unique uh, human being, among other things, and uh, these Gospels in particular um, give us that background on Jesus. So, of course, that's the that's the kernel of the Christmas, isn't it? Uh, yeah. The historic events tied in with Jesus. Well, I have to admit, uh, Jonathan, that as a young man and probably as a child, too, I can remember for many years, almost Oh, I don't even want to use the word, but it, it but kind of was wondering, why in the world are these big, long lists of names in the Bible? And as I became a better Bible student, I suddenly figured it out with the Holy Spirit's helping and am now enamored with them. We could probably talk the whole time just on those and all those characters, but maybe you can tell others that might have that same feeling that I had. What is the importance of these genealogies here? Sure. Well, of course, genealogies have 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 a purpose behind them, um, but the purpose may differ from the next genealogy. And in a general sense, what they have in common, of course, is uh, you know who who came from whom, and and how far back can you push those, and what kind of connections uh, does that do? I know a lot of people today who have a great interest in their family genealogy, and and that's of course uh, that that's the substance of both what we get in Matthew and in Luke. But genealogies can have other purposes as well, and and they can, for example, tie in with, uh, well, today we have an interest in, in a genetic uh, linkage, you know, mm-hmm. what, what, what kinds of problems or, or uh, characteristics get carried through genetically, so they may be done for those purposes. Sometimes we do them for family patterning purposes, property uh, purposes. Uh, and of course, uh, as, as I indicated already, uh, Matthew does it for royalty purposes and does something very interesting. You know, with, with Jesus' genealogy, he breaks into three groups of 14 generations, probably choosing the number 14, because if you take the name of David, Dawid in Hebrew, and convert the primary, the three primary consonants to their numerical value, you get the number 14. So it's a kind of a, a way of capturing uh, not only a relatively literal kind of a thing, there may have been a few generations uh, that, that are skipped or brought together, but you get a theological message again that says uh, royalty and descended from David. Uh, Luke, of course, is doing some similar things. It's, it's a literal genealogy. It's not for uh, property purposes or or genetic right. or anything like that, but does does seem to be tying in in some ways with a special uh, awareness of uh, Jesus' connections through Mary. It's interesting, he puts it a little bit later, you know, into his, he, he's up at the end of the third chapter uh, when he does this, but what he's basically uh, doing is taking Jesus all the way back to Adam. Uh, there are a number of things that might be said about what Luke is getting at, but at least one of them, uh, as he emphasizes the line of Joseph, uh, who is, and I like the way Luke puts it, Jesus was Joseph's son, as it was supposed, mm-hmm. as a number of uh, the Bibles, a number of tra- Bible translations put it, uh, meaning that Joseph is Jesus' legal father, uh, even if uh, due to the miracle of the virgin birth, he's not the biological father of Jesus. But Jesus has a genuinely human line that goes back to Adam, who's called the Son of God. 
Um, so a big direction made by God himself. So uh, there seems to be a, at least a, a, a difference in emphasis in the two. Excellent. You're listening to a special Christmas Bisberg sponsored by Geneva College, a behind-the-scenes look with Professor Jonathan Watt. I'm your host, Mike Howard. Jonathan, talk to us for a minute about the time between when Malachi's prophecy came and then the New Testament, that 400 intertest- intertestamental 400 mm-hmm. years. What was happening? What were people looking for? What are your thoughts on that? Sure, I have a couple of them. I, I have a nickname for that time period, by the way. I call it the Great Hiatus. Oh, nice. Uh, hiatus being a space. Right. You know? um, so when you turn just one page from the end of the well, we, what, what Christians call the Old Testament, uh, others might call it the Jewish or the Hebrew Scriptures, mm-hmm. um, both are appropriate labels, uh, you just turn one page and you've jumped four centuries, which I like to say is r- roughly, very roughly, uh, the length of the at least Western history of the United States. It's a big chunk of time, and a lot takes place, which we don't have time to get into today. But the, the one, one linkage we have is at the end of Malachi, it, it's, a, uh, it's a sober message that mm-hmm. says you know, so, something, is, something is off, and turning hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers is important, and there's going to be this return of Elijah. And uh, the linkage, of course, as Jesus makes it, uh, is uh, John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. He's the one who, in the spirit of Elijah, will have a key role in giving people an opportunity to reset. What what happens in those four centuries, it, by the way, fascinating history at both the, the college and the seminary. We make this an entire course uh, in and of itself, the intertestamentary period. Um, many things are happening. What are people looking for? It depends who you ask. Mm. Um, one of the emphases I like to give is, uh, you know, when people say, what, what, what are Jews thinking about X, Y, or Z? And I would answer similarly to what I might say if someone says, what are Christians thinking about X, Y, or Z? I say, well, it depends on, on the particular individual, the individual Jew or individual Christian. Uh, what kind of tradition are they and what kind of individual are they? So mm-hmm. there are some, let's make it clear, there are some who probably at the mo- at the time Jesus is born, what's primary on their on their mind is we want to be rid of this Roman occupation. Mm-hmm. So they're going to look back into the Isaiah perhaps and see some of the uh, authority uh, characteristics given to the Messiah in uh, Isaiah nine or eleven, and 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 looking maybe for someone like that. And there seem to be so-called messiahs in Jesus' day who do have that message, albeit we know they're not messiah. Um, there are probably others who have a more deeply spiritual understanding of Messiah, and uh, we would put that with Simeon and Anna as evidence of that stripe of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, let's assume there are many Jews who, who at that, that time who perhaps are not particularly thinking Messiah. They're just thinking about, you know, how do I get along day to day in the here and now, and maybe have no particular interest in the Messiah, as, as, as is true for many people who are Jewish today. So, some do and some don't have that kind of an interest. So then we have the silence, basically, of almost 400 years, whatever the, the time period yeah. was, broken yeah. with a lot of supernatural activity getting ready to happen. And I thought you could kind of give us a little insight into these two angel appearances, one with Zachariah yeah. and the other with Mary. Talk to us a little about those. Yes. Oh, they're fascinating, aren't mm-hmm. they, of course, with 
with uh, Luke, we get uh, an, an invitation to take into some take in some of the uh, well. Is it poetry? Is it song? Is it chanting? <laughs> well, I'm not exactly sure. Um, and and of course, they're tied in in two ways because some of these things have have an interest in what's going on with John the Baptist because he's the one who's going to welcome in the Messiah, being oh I don't know six to twelve months, let's say, ahead of Jesus in in birth. Um, and an in, inception to ministry and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, so, so we have through Mary's song, which we, we call the Magnificat, um, some kind of a you know, re- reflection on the fact that God's doing powerful things. Uh, you know, she keeps talking about the mighty things God has done. Holy is his name. He's showing mercy from generation to generation mm-hmm. on those who fear him. And yet, obviously, she's putting together the pieces in a way that, that at that point in her life, anyway, um, she can't quite yet do I mean, who, who could do it, right, unless God were to open up the details? Um, so, so we have that that side of it. Uh, Mary's reflection on the fact that she's a she's a common person. She's not famous. She's not powerful. They're not wealthy. She and Joseph, when they offer the dedicatory sacrifice to, uh, at Jesus' birth, are are doing it with um, the the poor person's sacrifice. A few pigeons or doves. That's, that's for the poor person. Um, and yet God's going to do something great for her. All, bla- all generations will call me blessed. So the irony of being low and then made famous comes out in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zechariah, uh, in his, his song, um, you know, God, God has visited and redeemed his people. And he goes on to talk about that. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. That kind of thing is is anticipating great things. Now, of course, John himself, uh, Zachariah's son, is tied in with that, but uh, it's a pointing to Jesus. So the songs or, or chantings or whatever we might want to call them are certainly prophetic as well as uh, praising God for the fact that he's going to do great things. You're listening to a special Christmas Bisberg, sponsored by Geneva College. I'm your host, Mike Howard, and our guest is Professor Jonathan Watt of Geneva College with a behind-the-scenes look here at Christmas. And Jonathan, my next thought I wanted you to talk about is uh, just one step back from those songs, though, is the reaction of Mary and the reaction of Zachariah mm-hmm. and what kind of the angel did to them differently <laughs> if you could mention that for a second and maybe a little on the sure, on the why sure. for people that might it took me a while to kind of get my head around why that happened yes well uh of course gabriel's involved with these kinds of things one of only two named angels mm-hmm. in all of the bot because the word angel means messenger mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes they're doing exactly that. Couple well, often they're doing that kind of a kind of a job, as we might say. Yeah, Ma- Mary's Mary's response is bewilderment, and yet uh, you know, may it happen to me as as God wills. Uh, with Zechariah, we're getting a bit of a, a struggle now. Of course, that's with regard not to Jesus per se, but to mm-hmm. the birth of his own son, given yeah. the fact that he and his wife are beyond childbearing years. So. One way to be, uh, well, I guess forced to reflect on that mm-hmm. is your silence uh, against <laughs> your will, and you're not able to speak until uh, after you confirm, yes, this child's name will be John, mm-hmm. uh, even though we don't have a relative by that. So so it's a little bit, um, I, I, th- those two responses remind me somewhat of uh, Abraham and Sarah learning they're going to have a biological child together. 
and and they they both laugh right in response and then the child who comes along gets named he laughs that's mm-hmm. isaac and yet their laughs are a little bit different one is maybe a laugh with a hint of derision and impossibility and maybe that's a, a foreshadow in a subtle way of, of zechariah's response and the other is the laugh of delight uh, God seems to tie in with their their way of thinking and relating that that leads to his response in terms of what he imposes there. It's just fascinating to me when you look through both of those, because the conversations and what happens, the angel appearance, they've kind of got the same flow and pattern, but Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, Zachariah's kind of punished a little and, and Mary is not. Tell yeah. us, to, how come Mary wasn't silenced? Oh, boy. Uh, I, I I wasn't there to observe an interview, but I wish I could have. That would have helped a lot. Yeah, I could it would have, have asked some direct questions. And I, I, I think that the, even though she, she has the legitimate question, it's actually, mm-hmm. in my view, it's two questions in one. The, the natural beginning point is, how can I get pregnant? when I've not had relations with someone. And, and that's, the, that's the obvious one. The, the, the not-so-obvious one, especially for their, uh, for their society and generation, is, but if I'm pregnant and I'm not yet married, uh, then I am disgraced, and the question is, will I ever be suitable for marriage? Mm. Um, and, and of course, it's a positive reflection on Joseph, who, when he learns it, is thinking, you know, I'll, the, the terminology says, I'll put her away silently, meaning, meaning terminate the betrothal, uh, but discreetly so as not to hurt her further, because he knows I, I didn't get her pregnant. Um, but but there's there's a so, so there's both a concern for how how can this happen, uh, and of course we're not really we're told it's by the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't tell us biologically how it happens. Right. Just the fact is there, okay. Um, and then the other is, but what does it mean for me? Uh, this is Mary. What does it mean for me as a as a person? Uh, and what will people think of me? Uh, and yet that that seems to not be overwhelming her more more along the lines of. What great thing is God going to do? I can't imagine how it's going to be, but let it be done, and how wonderful that is. And so her, her uh, submission to God is a wonderful thing. Amen. You're listening to a very special Bisberg, a Christmas special behind-the-scenes look with Professor Jonathan Watt from Geneva College. And I just want to remind you, if you've just joined us or would like to catch this again, we'll be airing uh, tonight, tomorrow night, and the uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas night, but also on our podcast network, which is Pittsburgh Podcast or Podcast Pittsburgh, take your pick, dot com. You'd be able to go back and, and listen to this. So, Jonathan, I think we're right at that pivotal point of of to me the the greatest thing miracle whatever that has ever happened because it never happened before and never happened since that a virgin gave birth to someone who's both god and man give us give us that meat on that thing for a minute Well, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis caught it well. You know, he said in, in this event, uh, myth became reality. Mm. Uh, how, how, what a great way to put it. The other person who's always intrigued me is uh, the interviewer, Larry King, from, from a Jewish background, was once asked if he could interview anybody from history. Who, who would he interview? And he said, well, he'd, he'd like to interview Jesus. And when he was asked, what, what would you ask him? Uh, Larry King reportedly said, well, I'd ask him if, in fact, he was virgin-born, because the answer to that question would explain a lot. <laughs> I thought, what, what a great insight. Yeah. What a great insight. Um, so there it is, and of course, it, it's this, it's this 
among other things, unique difference between every other human being and Jesus, uh, Christianity stands or falls on the uniqueness of Jesus, Mm -hmm. really. Uh, You know, its ethics, in theory, could could be replicated or have been replicated by uh, other religions or just by humanism, and I'm I'm saying in theory it could be done that way. Uh, Its ethics could be done, uh, some of its abstract or or transcendent ideas of of what is God-like, I suppose, could be carried by other religions as well. But as soon as we posit the incarnation, which means in flesh, or someone has said we could call it the enfleshment of the Son of God, Mm -hmm. we're now... talking something absolutely without parallel, as we say in Latin, sui generis, one of a kind, um, nothing else like it in history, past or present. And that's what makes uh, Christianity stands or falls with the person of Jesus. And this event that happened, very true. So here's what I'd like to do for a couple of minutes. We've about uh, five minutes left for tonight, Jonathan, and that's uh, transform us into the biblical travel channel. We have Mary going to visit Elizabeth. We have Mary and Joseph heading back. What are the conditions? The give us your insight on that. You've been there. You, I'd love to hear that. Well, uh, loosely speaking, let me just get a generalization. Mm-hmm. So, so three parts of Jewish Palestine, uh, three main parts. Let's say Galilee in the north, and of course Lake Galilee up there. Um, we we have uh, Samaria in the central, a little bit less than a third uh, of the land, and then we have Judea, uh, named after the tribe of Judah, uh, that's in the south, uh, which, of course, was the location of the southern Israelite kingdom. So uh, Bethlehem is in the south. Uh, They come from the north. They travel all the way down. Uh, How many miles is it exactly? Well, depending on where you leave from and depending on what route you take, uh, whether you take a direct or indirect route, uh, maybe a trip of 60 to 90 miles, something like that, uh, with lots of uh, variabilities in there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're talking some days, uh, slow travel, especially with a pregnant woman uh, riding a donkey. Donkeys generally move pretty slow. Uh, Slow travel. So we're talking quite a few days and potentially even uh, a week or two. Uh, it could be longer. It can, it can take as long as you want, but it's a slow trip from the north to the south, cutting through Samaritan territory, and then going back to the ancestral home of the family, which is, uh, which is of course, Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem, oh, about four to five miles. Once you, once you hit Bethlehem, if you look back up north on a clear day and you're standing up on one of the heights around Bethlehem, you can just make out the edge of the city of Jerusalem. So they're in, they're in a very different territory. Yes, ancestral home, connected with the patriarchs, but not currently their home. And that's shown in the fact that they had a hard time finding a place uh, to stay mm-hmm. uh, and also to, to give birth. So they're in a difficult position. Yeah, it just fascinates me when I think about it, and especially just all the changes we've had in the last 10 to 20 years with, you know, Uber and Google Maps and all that. Mm, but here they yes. had nothing other than, you know, donkey or yeah. camelback or however, or, or by foot. This is just so different yeah. back then. It really was. Now, there were three major travel routes north to south. 
Uh, one is east of the Jordan River. One is on the western flank uh, next to the Mediterranean. And then there's a ridge road that, loosely speaking, cuts down the center. Uh, and, and it may have been the ridge road that they, they... Well, they certainly would have taken the ridge road in the latter part. I suspect they took it in the, in the earlier part as well as they meandered down. And then that lands them right in this line of cities from, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and then, and then others, Hebron and elsewhere, uh, down south. So that's my guess. Yes. No, no one knows for sure, but that's my guess of how they did it. Okay, Jonathan, a couple more minutes here on part one of this very okay. special Bisberg, sponsored by Geneva College, a behind-the-scenes look at Christmas. I'm your host, Mike Howard. Our guest is Professor Jonathan Watt. Set the scene for us here in this last couple minutes, and we'll advance into our next part um, about the manger and what we're looking at here. Where are they? Sure. Well, so the the location is some kind of animal-connected place. Yeah. Uh, that, that much we know. Um, is it, is it a, like a shack? Is it a structure? Is it a cave? Uh, one possibility is, is you have sort of a cave arrangement that might have some, some wall or, or, or small barn-like structure around it. It's, it's, it's something in that range. And in cooler nights, uh, as well as for protection against wild animals, uh, sheep would be brought into what we would today call a pen, or, or in this case, possibly a cave or some kind of enclosure, um, and then kept there for the night. So, so what, what a manger is, really, is a, an animal feeding trough. Wow. Uh, you know, we have we actually have mangers from biblical times uh, that still are in existence. They're stone. Um, now they could have been wood, of course, but uh, the wood ones are less likely to survive the the elements over the centuries. But stone ones exist, and they they tend to be oh maybe maybe uh, two to three feet long, uh, maybe a foot wide, maybe a foot and a half deep. Um, and you would put in the, the grain or the, the grass or the, the hay or whatever the animal mm-hmm. is eating, or you could put in water for them to drink, something like that. So you have an enclosure where it's open top, of course, uh, but you, you at least have something that is protecting whatever's in there. Um, and that seems to be, as they got basic wrappings for the child, uh, putting him in an animal feeding trough. Great. Major. And next time, we're going to see Emmanuel, God with us. Jonathan, I'll join you for part two tomorrow. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you.